Well, today's episode brought to you by ISO 10993 Part 23. We have a new standard and lots of questions to answer. ISO standards are going to keep us in business for podcasts. They are. So, they are. You think we can get them as a sponsor? Very well. I know. <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. We have yet to get any sponsors. We still have no sponsorship revenue. What, what's our think, problem? I don't, I don't think ISO is going to sponsor us. I don't think that's in it for them. So, but. I don't think so either. I don't think so either. So anyway, folks, this episode's answering your questions about ISO 10993-23, 2021. It issued the end of January. We held a webinar, 1st of February. Lots of questions that were submitted that went unanswered. So we're using this platform to answer some of the main themes and hope that uh, we can help clarify some of the confusion around part 23 and the in vitro irritation assay in particular. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMS is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Well, ISO has given us something to talk about, Don. We are... ISO has. <laughs> we are... We are... We've had an active several weeks around NAMSA. And for those of you that have been listening in or not listening in, whatever, ISO 10993-23 released uh, towards the end of January. And we've scrambled and, and had a few educational events. And we thought today, similar to we did almost last year to the day, we'd answer some of our webinar questions on the podcast. So we had a webinar on February 3rd, and as as we would have it, lots of attendees and lots of questions. So we pulled some of the, I don't know, most intriguing questions, Don. Is, is that inaccurate? Yeah, you know, as intriguing as, you know, questions after a webinar on biocomp can be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Or at least so, maybe pulled some themes out of the Some themes. We definitely, you're right. We definitely saw some themes. Uh, with questions around in vitro irritation. So one of the main things, obviously, or not obviously, if you have been listening, is part 23 is the new standard for irritation testing for medical devices. Previously found in part 10 and actually still found in part 10. <laughs> we'll touch on that a little bit. But now they have given irritation its own seat at the table. That's right. That's right. It's, it's, it's important enough that it needs to stand on its own now, folks. Right. It is no longer sharing space with sensitization. It has its own seat at the table. So irritation is brought into part 23. One of the biggest changes is that there is a call out in this version for an in vitro analysis of irritation prior to an in vivo study. This is than breaking news, if we were to have any. <laughs> this is the news flash. This is the news flash. Breaking news, right? We're we're hoping that a year from now it'll feel like old business. <laughs> old Nobody news. Cares. Old news. But now it's new business right now. Right now it's new business. So we're going to talk about some of the questions 
that we got in this webinar. So if you have not had a chance to listen to the webinar or you'd like to listen to the webinar, you can follow the link www.namsa.com slash part 23. That's just P-A-R-T 23. That will take you directly to the webinar that Don so rapidly and kindly put together for us uh, a few weeks ago. And you can get more of the detail. So we're not going to go through the whole detail of the standard here. We're going to answer questions. But if you want to listen to that webinar and get some of the detail, again, that link is www.namsa.com slash part 23. So Don, let's get um, let's get to it. So we had a couple of questions in the webinar around solid materials. And I think there was a little bit of confusion because we're saying it's only for medical devices that are solid. But then at one point we said you can't use a solid material and there was some confusion around that. So maybe you could clarify um, what you meant by that. Yeah. So basically what I meant was that you can't test solid materials by applying them directly to the test system. So for anybody that's done a primary skin irritation test by direct application, you cut a one inch by one inch square and you apply it directly to the, the test subject skin. So that's, that's the in vivo side of it. So if you were thinking you were going to do the same thing on an in vitro side and take a really tiny piece of material and place it directly on the RHE test system in vitro, that will not happen. They, they advise against doing that. This is an extraction-based evaluation, and so you will be creating extracts in most cases and dosing extracts. There is some allowance for gels and liquids. They say it might work, but you might have to do some validation up front. But again, there's not a direct contact equivalent for the in vitro like there is on the in vivo side. So right. if you have a solid thing like a stent, like, you know, any type of solid device, you're going to be basically extracting that in saline and sesame oil and dosing two separate, you know, sets, wells of the test system um, and, and analyzing irritation in both. Great. Yeah, I think we had we had several questions around that. And I think it was one line on a slide. And so uh, yeah. thanks for for clarifying that. I've I've clarified that for a few folks internally as well. So along those lines, so we had a couple questions about the in vitro method and implantable devices. So is the in vitro method acceptable for implantable devices, even slash preferred for implantable devices? We'll probably go into that a little bit because that's that might be depending on where you're sending your submission. But right. can you talk a little bit about long-term exposure, implantable devices, and and if the in vitro method is applicable? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there was definitely a theme there for sure. <laughs> at the questions, because I think you know the emphasis was placed on the fact that in the publication, the test was validated against the primary skin irritation and intracutaneous, and so it was applicable for you know certainly skin contact devices. But then there was confusion about well, what about all the other categories? <laughs> Right. And so essentially there's a little bit of assumption here. But if 
in the past you used the intracutaneous irritation test appropriately or the primary skin irritation test appropriately, then this in vitro test is for you. If you were using intracutaneous in place of, say, a mucosal irritation test because your device has mucosal contact, then according to the standard, this test as it stands right now is not for you. So again, so if you have an orthopedic implant, if you have a device that even has indirect contact, externally communicating blood path indirect, externally communicating devices, then historically the test that you went to for irritation was typically intracutaneous, and that's appropriate. That's, that's what it's used for. So if we connect the dots, then I would say this in vitro test is appropriate as well because it was validated against the intracutaneous irritation test. So, um, and then implants, I mentioned external communicating, but then implants as well. But, you know, the one area that was maybe most obvious is, again, mucosal contact and eye epithelial contact. The standard calls them out as special categories, and this test was not validated for those types of exposures. Right, right. Great. Yeah, I think... Uh, as I'm sitting here, it almost warrants a if then um, graphic created that I might I might want to put in place for the teams to to help with this decision because I think that's very clear. If you did this successfully, then yes, this applies. If you did not do this successfully, then this doesn't apply. I think it's a a great way of looking at it. And so to follow up with that, so this is what the standard says, right? If this, then that. But as we all know, the regulatory environment is different depending on where we're going. And I'm trying to find actually if you had a direct question highlighted about this, but I'm going here anyway. I think you did. What we've done is highlighted some of your questions, folks, and are using them as a guide today. And it's very early in the morning where we're recording. So I'm sure you may not be (laughs) fully awake yet. So that's what the standard says. If you're this, then this. What about? the the regulatory world you know depending on where i might be trying to get approval how do i address that i think we kind of have more if thens there right yeah yeah for sure and and i think part of the challenge there is just going to be the timing of the whole situation so you know if you have a device and the in vitro test is appropriate for your device and it's March 2021, and you got to get things started. Right. And you know, you're submitting to the FDA and to the EU. You know, you, you might be sitting there going, okay, I'm pretty sure the EU is going to mandate that I do in vitro. But what I don't know is if the FDA by then is going to accept my in vitro test because they haven't formally stated that. So, you know, it almost feels like, okay, should I do in vitro and in vivo, which seems, again, counterproductive to the overall yeah. goal. <laughs> so, I mean, you're going to have to make a decision there. I mean, part of me would say, okay, look at what I'm up against in terms of the testing. And if the FDA doesn't take my in vitro test, it's not like the in vivo, the intracutaneous irritation test is a 20-month study. I mean, it's a in vivo, sure. it's one week, one week long, 
you know, general turnaround times or say a month or something like that. So worse things could happen if the FDA comes back and says, we don't currently accept the in vitro test. Okay. I'll go do an intracutaneous real quick and we'll come back right away. So, yeah. I mean, it's it just kind of depends on how you approach that situation. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer at this point. And I think one of the things that we've talked about, so we have heard from one notified body in particular that they are going to be giving what I'm calling a one-year grace period, meaning the standard just issued in January 2021. They're giving folks until January 2022 to switch the method. So maybe if you happen to be going to that notified body, (laughs) you would... uh, (laughs) Which and now that I'm saying that, I'm like, I really can't say. I guess I could say. I don't know. I'm not sure. But what I'm suggesting to people is to go ahead and have that conversation with your notified body. Hey, I have a submission coming up later this year. Are you expecting, you know, part 23 right now? Or is there a grace period that you're giving? The one that, you know, said they're giving a grace period is a large, you know, notified body. They are MDR certified. So... I would like to think maybe others are are following that method too, but I, my suggestion to folks is to just have that quick conversation with your notified body and ask them. And then you can call us and tell us which notified body it was and what they said. <laughs> <laughs> so Don and I know the right guidance to give. I guess I could call all the notified body myself. That's probably, I, sh- I could actually do that. But anyway, that's my suggestion. The other thing too, is if you're having a pre-sub with the FDA, Maybe the same conversation. Hey, I'd like to do the in vitro method instead of the intracutaneous. What's your position there? Off, I mean, it's technically on the record, off the record, right? There hasn't been a guidance issued, but if you discuss it in a pre-sub, you may get that answer too. And I have, uh, I do have a question out to the FDA on that right now, but I'm pretty sure I won't get an answer until we actually get an official position from the FDA. Yeah. And hopefully that position, you know, and if it's via the whatever format, if it's in the recognized, uh, it's in the consensus standards database, then then hopefully right. there's some extent that you can apply it and that it aligns with what the standard says that, you know, that's that's my hope. But um, right. I guess, you know, it's it's all got to be confirmed. And I guess that's the, the key thing is. As for other countries, we have heard that Japan absolutely is aligned with part 23 and adopted it even actually before it was issued. I think it was in the MHLW is that <laughs> that's kind of the message that I got. I also followed up with our, our Japanese colleagues, as I mentioned on the podcast that we would do. And, and that's, that's what they're telling me as well. The, we are aligned, they're aligned with part 23. It's not actually they're not actually saying that they won't accept the in vivo method, but they're certainly aligned with that the guidance in part 23 that says you should perform the in vitro assay before. So again, maybe a grace period there that they're not making an yeah. official statement on. Have your folks on the ground in Japan check with them. But, you know, like you said, Don, the the intracutaneous is now the faster, cheaper model. So if you if you want to err on the side of doing the longer one first, that would be the in vitro as it's outlined. So, all right, enough yep. about that. Let's go on to, and I realized you did not have one of those questions on the list. I didn't. So I, there I you go. Frantically I, looking in the background. And, uh, I threw a curveball at you, but I think it's important because <laughs> that is one of the questions 
that we get a lot. So we also have um, some questions about this current strategy about, you know, I, I already have this in place and historical strategy has been in vivo testing. We don't have evidence, you know, or anything that, that says alternatively we shouldn't do irritation. So they're considering changing their strategy to one that utilized chemical characterization and or in vitro testing instead of in vivo. Someone recommended doing the in vivo testing anyway. In light of the release of 23, would you still recommend completing the in vivo test instead of the other options? Is there a reason the in vitro method doesn't make sense for low risk device? So I think we kind of touched on that. It might be based on the regulatory environment, but yeah, and and I think part of that 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 question, you know, there was a little bit of a a theme in some of the other questions as well that started to develop, at least from the standpoint of chemical characterization testing, and because we talked about in the in the webinar the stepwise approach to the evaluation process, you know, right, chemical care or characterization data literature review in vitro in vivo human is the stepwise approach that you see. And it's not that you're going to go through that entire process all the way down to human for every situation, uh, obviously, or even to in vivo. But I think in terms of stopping it before you even get to in vitro, like basing your evaluation on just chemical characterization type data and literature review, that certainly might be a that certainly could be challenged by some regulatory bodies, I think, is, is certainly. So if you look at like FDA's biocompatibility guidance, you know, they make mention that you know, chemical analysis cannot always be used to address local effects like irritation, sensitization, hemocompatibility, implantation, that sort of thing. And so I think you have to be a little bit careful between what the standard says in your ability to use that type of data to offset for all regulators irritation in this specific topic, but other things as well, right. like the ones that rattled off. But again, it, it just, it does, it, it depends on what you have, what you're trying to do. Like if you have complete chemical makeup of something and you research literature and that tells you that every one of those chemicals, none of them are known to be irritants. Well, that's, a little bit more than, you know, an extractable data set that has two unidentified quantitation limits that really don't relate to irritation per se. And then you're left with wondering, are your extractables complete enough to make a statement that you don't have to do in vitro irritation? And that scenario there, I think, could be, could be challenged as well. But Likewise, if you're submitting to the notified body, the standard says what the standard says, and it's in the norm right. text of the standard. <laughs> so if you just gloss over characterization, I'm not talking extractables testing, but if you just gloss over characterization overall and never mention it in your biocompatibility you know, evaluation, then for reasons other than just part 23, I mean, part one, you know, you're not going to be technically in compliance with what's stated in those standards. So you just got to be careful what you expect out of a data set based on what, what standards suggest, because you could have some, some challenges there. Right. Yeah. I think that's one of the, the questions that we get most often is if I have a short-term device, why do I do characterization? Because I'm going to have to do sensitization and irritation anyway. 
And it's not the reason we do characterization is just to get out of in yeah. vivo testing. I mean, I think that's the that is not the purpose. <laughs> that's not what it was yeah. designed for, but it's often what it's interpreted as. I do characterization so I don't have to do all my in vivo tests. And that's not yep. what it's meant to to do. Certainly it's going to my my words I like to use, eliminate unnecessary in vivo testing, but that doesn't mean all of them are going to be eliminated. And those two especially are challenging yeah. to eliminate. So yeah. general theme of questions we get, no matter what the presentation is, it's almost always a question around, can I use my characterization data to not have to do sensitization and irritation? So all right, let's talk a little bit about the test method itself. So there are a couple methods that are outlined in the standard, which uh, again, breaking news, the standard gave us test methods. That's not typical, right? That's a break from the norm, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And they, and they uh, talk about, you know, the two basically kits that one can use are the methods, which the names always uh, escape me, but the Epi skin and what is the other one? Skin ethic. I think it is. Yeah. Um, and, and so those two are the two that, are also mentioned in the publication that we were talking about that validated the method against primary skin and intracutaneous. And then in addition to those, those kits, let's just say, then the standard goes beyond that and summarizes basically the, the, the process, the whole, the, the whole testing process. And, and at the end of it, it's, you know, for anybody that does an MTT cytotoxicity test, it's essentially very similar to an MTT cytotoxicity test where you measure the conversion of that to uh, formazan, and then that translates into viability. Viability tells you whether or not you're an irritant or not an irritant in this case. So, you know, similar in concept. And, and, and again, the standard walks you through and fairly you know, good detail, the whole step in the overall testing uh, process when it comes to the in vitro method for, for irritation. But, um, you know, and I, I'm trusting, as I was joking with one of my colleagues, that there's not any, you know, typos in the standard because it's almost so detailed in some <laughs> cases. <laughs> it's almost a protocol. <laughs> yeah, almost. And, and there's, it's all the way down to um, annexes at the back of the, uh, standard that give you data sheets of information that you'd be collecting during the during the uh, the, the testing process um, almost indicating you know don't forget about recording this because you know this is important that's important that sort of thing so yeah it's 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 interesting just uh, how detailed the standard is in this case and you know there's some detail for the in vivo studies like there are there has been in the past but but this one kind of took it to another level. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. So along those lines, uh, I know we had a lot of questions around controls and maybe some confusion around the test control. So I'm going to read this question. Uh, it's number 89 on the list on if you want to look at. So in the validated in vitro system, skin irritation test method for medical device extracts, do you know if saline will also serve as a control for the test system? I noticed that CMF PBS will serve as a negative control, and I was curious to understand the purpose of choosing that, perhaps due to the potential interactions of calcium and magnesium ions with the test system. 
If so, would the saline in the polar test extract potentially cause interference that wouldn't be seen in the CMF PBS? This question's a moot point if saline will serve as a negative control as well as the test control. So I think we had a few questions. I mean, we had a theme about <laughs> help me understand the control, negative control, test control. So maybe if you want to touch on that a little bit. Yeah. So there's um, there are positive controls, which are sodium dodecyl sulfate, 1%. Then there is a negative control, which is CMF PBS or Delbeco's PBS. And then there are two reagent controls, if you want to call them that, or vehicle controls, which would be saline extracted, like the test article is extracted, but just a blank, nothing in it. And then vegetable oil or sesame oil extracted, again, as a blank control, nothing in it, and, and those dosed as well. So there are negative controls just in terms of a chemical, if you want to refer to PBS that way. And then there's the negative vehicle controls as well that, that all gets um, tested in the assay. So in that question, any potential interference from the extraction vehicles themselves is essentially being accounted for by the testing of those vehicles as as an article in the study. Got it. Yeah, that that helps clarify that. Thank you. There was one other thing I was thinking of that I didn't see here in the questions, and now I've I've lost it. So lucky you, I don't get to spring another unplanned question on you. <laughs> I think the the remaining one that we kind of had highlighted we wanted to discuss today. So the other thing we did in that webinar is just give a brief mention to ISO 10993 part 12, as it also issued very late in January. So we wanted to give it just a little mention and it, it you know, spurred a few questions of its own. So I think there was one here in particular we wanted to discuss around extraction. You mentioned ex extraction for 72 hours in cyto study while the part five allows for other times like one, four and 24 is the new extraction time in part 12 trumping the allowable extraction times in part five. So. Yeah. And I, I mean, my thought there is, is that because again, part 23 is a new standard and a, a new version of part five hasn't, hasn't issued the kind of, again, the, if you take it from the state of the art concept, Part 12 would be state-of-the-art. It indicates within it that extractions for cytotoxicity would be essentially 37 degrees C for 24 up to 72 hours. And again, 72 hours would cover prolonged and implant, uh, prolonged, I'm sorry, prolonged and permanent or long-term contacting devices. And the 24 hours would only cover limited and then likewise, the one hour or four hour stipulation could then also be applied, I still think, in specific situations for, you know, short term limited contacting devices. So I would say long way of saying, you know, yeah, I think in my opinion, part 12 trumps <laughs> part five uh, because it's it's a newer version of a standard. And it can I'm a little details. bothered by how many times we're saying Trump, but that's OK. Yeah, I, that's <laughs> Trumping. <laughs> We're playing euchre here. This is not political. We're playing. Oh, euchre. okay. Oh, got it. Got it. Trump. <laughs> it's okay. Trump Whatever you want. Or pitch. I'm I'm a Midwestern pitch player. Uh, <laughs> got it. 
Understood. Excellent. Don, was there anything on part 23 that I skipped over that you want to address? I think we ha- we did have a few questions about, and and I think this is important, about if I already have the in vivo data, like I've already done the test and I'm submitting later this year or what have you, does this mean I need to repeat? I think, again, probably my response would be check with your your regulatory wherever you're submitting that. But in general, I don't think that the standard is saying to undo that. Or if you have, yeah, let's let's touch on that question. And then I want to touch on yeah. if you fail the, in, quote unquote, fail the in vitro assay. Yeah, in, in, the, in terms of like doing additional testing, just because the standard issued, I think, again, you know, when part one updated, you know, they added a principle about updates to the standard don't mandate, you know, repeating testing. You might have to look back at your evaluation and make sure all your details are there. And that was with regards to part one, similar concept in terms of uh, a part 23, I would say, if you already have your data collected, might be worth mentioning in your biocompatibility evaluation report. If you feel like you need to, the timing of events, you know, testing was already planned, executed and performed before 23 was issued. Therefore, an in vivo study was performed, not in vitro. You know, we're not going backwards to reevaluate on the in vitro level, something to that effect. I think that would be, you know, a a thing you put in place to to cover that. Um, Again, just just to say that you recognize what's going on, you know, and if you haven't, if you already have the data, but haven't submitted again, I just, I don't like the idea of repeating because then you could get yourself in this trap too. Say you do a gap analysis for a standard (laughs) and you don't have it there. Does that mean you have to go back? Well, again, I think you want to review your data, not only your testing data, but your post-market surveillance data. If you're already to that point, clinical data, if it exists, that sort of stuff based on part one to say, you know, I know the standard updated. I know we don't have an in vitro test, but there's no nothing indicating that I would need to go back and reevaluate irritation on an in vitro level at this point, something to that effect. So I think it's, you know, again, just things that you have to think about going forward of, of how this might impact you or not. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's that's really valid. And like you said, kind of across the board, it's an approach you want to take. I like the idea of, you know, don't look backward. That's not the direction you're going. So right. <laughs> keep, yeah. keep looking, keep looking forward. And along those lines, just the last one I think I want to cover that we had, I've had some side discussions about. So say I do choose to do the in vitro assay and I receive a response of it being an irritant. Does this mean I automatically move on to in vivo or, you know, how does the, I know I think the standard's a little vague there. So wanted to get your thought process on that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I guess maybe a little bit of a drawback in terms of the detail in the standard. Um, we have we have the assay in great detail. We have the evaluation a little bit lacking in my opinion, but <laughs> my opinion, what's it worth? Not, we're certainly not criticizing the authors of yeah. the standard. No, 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 just, but I can <laughs> That's understand. It's not our nature to criticize people. <laughs> no, because you, you, you know, you put too much detail in a standard and then it's almost mm-hmm. like so definitive that you feel like, oh, well, you didn't accomplish the reduction of animal-based type testing because 
you know, you basically told me X, Y, and Z. So, so yeah, I mean, the standard has like the one sentence in it that says in vivo testing may be needed post in vitro to clarify things, but it doesn't really say because you failed, <laughs> because you're an irritant. Again, that the in vivo method is going to trump the in vitro method. And, and I know that's what people see and read in part five for in vitro cytotoxicity. But here, I think, again, I think you just need to be careful that you do your due diligence, look at your failure on the in vitro level, understand the materials that go into your device, your manufacturing processes, confirm that you didn't miss something that this, I mean, it's testing. It's a test result. Is it trying to tell you something? And then through all of that, you, you may determine that you're going to do an in vivo test to help clarify what you saw at the in vitro level. It's not presenting it, though, as a requirement every time you potentially fail an in vitro method. So, yeah, it, it just, you know, do a, you know, a thorough investigation into, I guess, the in vitro result would be my recommendation before you just automatically jump to an in vivo test and say, look, past it, don't have to worry about that. Like, I, I don't right. know that it should be that easy. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, good. I think we've covered a lot of the, again, the main theme of the question. We had uh, well over 100 questions that were still open at the end of the webinar to answer. And and we've we've done that. So we wanted to just address kind of the main theme of of some of the major questions here for folks to listen to. Exactly. It's always nice to have the podcast episode after a webinar, just because, in yeah. case, you know, for fear that you misspoke or said some confusing things, which certainly <laughs> right. happened. Use the Do podcast you need to clarify. clarify. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Don. Again, folks, if you missed the webinar or you'd like to go back and listen to the webinar, it's available on demand. It's free at www.namsa.com slash part 23. That will take you directly to the page. And you just, you know, click the register button and it takes you there. When you get to the webinar page, there is a copy of the presentation as well under the resources tab. We're going to also place our Q&A under that resources tab so you can download the Q&A and see the answers that we gave to folks that we had to, that we emailed out. And yeah, I think that is, that's a, that's a good uh, wrap up on part 23 for now as we learn more. Maybe it's to be continued. Yep, maybe so. And, you know, I'm sure there'll be another standard, you know, in the in the future <laughs> right. that we can talk about. So uh, part 17 is is looming out there somewhere for us to to uh, anticipate its arrival and how part it's 10. going. To, oh, part 10 is looming out the there, corner. too. That's right. That's right. We got to take <laughs> irritation out and uh, and have part 10 just be about sensitization. It could be a busy standard year. It could be. Could be webinar chaos. Who knows? We'll <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everybody again for joining us. And uh, we're happy you're here. And uh, we'll find something interesting to talk about for you next month. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy biocompatibility, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com slash resources slash podcast.